Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. It is no secret that Earth is changing, but it may be faster than you think. What if we had the ability to see what parts of the Earth were changing day by day? How much of the U.S. coast is shrinking due to sea level rise? How are raging wildfires in California shaping our landscape? These are questions that a group of scientists are taking on with their latest project. My guest today is archaeologist Chris Fisher, the owner or co-owner, I should say, of the Earth Archive Project. This project will use LIDAR technology to take it highlight quality imagery of the most vulnerable places on our planet and help preserve them for future generations. Chris, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I well, really appreciate well, it. Well, this is great because I, I really love that we actually expand our, our reach in this podcast to kind of really touch all corners of earth sciences, not just weather and climate. And I think your discussion today will be one of those really extended or expanded geek outs, as we like to say. <laughs> uh, Chris is the founder of the Earth Archive Project, uh, and I believe you maybe co-founded that. Your background, you're an archaeologist and professor of anthropology and a national geographic explorer and based at Colorado State University. Shout out to my colleague at University of Georgia, Jenna Jambeck, who I believe is also a National Geographic explorer. Now, your work has been funded by the National Science Foundation, National Geographic, and the Heinz Foundation, among others. Fisher is also the 2007 recipient of the Gordon R. Wiley Award from the American Anthropological Association. So, Chris, while it sounds like you definitely have a very impressive background, uh, before we... <laughs> I should, before I should also, I should also say that I'm 100% a geek. So, uh. well, you came to the right <laughs> podcast then because we actually named ours Weather Geeks, and so we we love to geek out, and I hope to do that with you today. Don't feel encumbered, un- encumbered here. We, the discussion is free flowing, and we like geeky terms, so feel free to throw them out. But before okay. we go there, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became an archaeologist. So I'm, I'm, I have an unusual trajectory, and often when, when people say, when, when you talk to an archaeologist and they, they might say something like, oh, I, I always wanted to be an archaeologist or something like that, I didn't actually always want to be an archaeologist. I started my career in, uh, uh, in undergraduate as a music major, a percussion major, and I realized that I just didn't have the focus to be the next Elvin Jones, the next great jazz drummer. And <laughs> so I, I went through a, like a year of uh, introspection and I took an archaeological field school and I really loved it. And I'd always been interested in archaeology, but I really loved the field school and I just totally got, got hooked on it. And so I'm kind of an example of one of these people that got to, got to college and took a couple of years to sort of figure out what they, what they wanted to do, um, which I always tell my students is okay, you know. So you you were an archaeologist, and I'm sure in many people's minds uh, that conjures up images of Indiana Jones or mummies in Egypt or digging up dinosaurs. Give us a sort of broad sweep of what archaeologists really do, and I'm sure maybe it's some of that, but I bet it's more than that, too. It's a lot of tedious field work is what it actually (laughs) is. (laughs) 
uh, interspersed with periods of uh, intense discoveries. And I'm an unusual archaeologist in that I was trained using traditional field methodologies, many of which go back to the turn of the last century. But uh, I've also started using these 21st century technologies, like LIDAR, this three-dimensional scanning technique. And so I kind of have a foot in both worlds. I can see how the field has changed and how it's been transformed by, uh, by these incredible sort of new technologies. Been very lucky that way. Now let, let's talk about lidar because I, I I actually came up in the meteorology world. Uh, some of my early graduate work was using radar in radar meteorology. Explain what lidar is. So we lidar is a technology that is uh, it, it's in it's uh, very popular now. It's it's not a new technology. It's used in everything from uh, self driving cars to counting trout in high Montana mountain streams, doing a census of trout, we use something called airborne LIDAR. And from some sort of platform, could be a helicopter, could be a fixed-wing aircraft, it will be drones in the future. But right now that technology is just not uh, sophisticated enough to allow us to use that to do to help us with the Earth Archive right now. That could change, you know, next year. Uh, From that aircraft, you have an instrument that shoots down a grid of laser beams. And when one of those beams touches the the Earth's surface or something on the Earth's surface, so it could be the ground, could be a leaf in a tree, could be a bird, that pulse of light returns back to a sensor on the aircraft, and it gives you a measure of distance. So it's like uh, sonar for the ground. I think some people may be familiar with uh, similar technology if they've gotten a speeding ticket, speeding ticket, because I know that yeah. some some um, police enforcement agencies use laser detection for um, detecting how fast we're going, sort of Doppler principles using LIDAR. So it's in your lives sometimes, whether you believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the thing about airborne li- uh, LIDAR is that there are about 500,000 pulses per second. So that grid of beams is so dense that no matter how uh, impenetrable the vegetation is on the Earth's surface, some of those beams will reach the ground. Wow. And what you, what you end up with is not an image. It's actually a dense three-dimensional cloud of points. And if you put on a set of 3D glasses, you can actually sort of walk through it. And eventually, we'll be able to use these records. This is how we will create the holodeck on, on, from Star Trek. This is this is the way that it'll happen. It's not quite there yet, but this is how that this is how that will happen. Now, with, with that introduction to lidar, let's talk about the Earth Archive project. What is it, and what inspired you to do it? Well, our Earth is changing so rapidly, as you know, and as we've uh, as it has been evidenced by you know we're constantly inundated with headlines now of unusual weather events, uh, flooding, etc., uh, rising sea levels. Uh, fires. Um, no, you know, even if we all started, and, and it's pretty obvious that this is due to, uh, to to global warming, which is part of it's the climate crisis. So you want to establish that right now, just to kind of you know, unequivocally state that that climate change is happening, and because of that, we're seeing many of the things that we're we're seeing. Absolutely, and that's not disputable from my perspective. Yeah, and I think from most scientists that are publishing in the literature's perspective either, although there's a lot of noise and sort of misinformation that gets around out there, as you certainly well know. And and that's really unfortunate, I think. 
uh, because it's it's an all hands on deck situation right now. I mean, th- does that really bother you that it, that that we are constantly swatting down these flies, if you will, of inaccuracy or ideologically rooted um, misinformation? I think we're at a place in in the history of our species where everybody has to sort of stand up and be counted. And we have to understand that what we're creating now is our own personal legacy. And if we want the people, our people that will follow us, to see us as somebody that ignored this overwhelming amount of evidence and didn't do something, that's a personal choice. But most of us, I think, feel a, a responsibility to, to future generations of people to do something. And that's really what inspired the Earth Archive. Now, you are an archaeologist, and I, I just want to kind of vector there since you mentioned this in your remarks. Um, you, you study, in some ways, the past and to try to understand contemporary times in the future. But there are some that say, well, you know, climate has always changed and it varies naturally. And we've always had extreme events. How do you respond to that? Well, there's <clears throat> sort of two, two related things there. And, and <clears throat> if I just back up one second, I mean, I often get this question. You're an archaeologist. What do you have why do you care about, you know, you study like dead people and, uh, you know, dead people's garbage and past things. And how does that relate to, to the, the future world? And archaeology is really a science that takes what we learn from the past and projects it into the future. And in that sense, I'm trained to be a time traveler. I see the earth as it was. I see the earth as it is today. And I model the earth for the future. So archaeologists are the ideal ones to be leading these kinds of projects because we have these long-term perspectives on human environment interactions. Now, I want to read a quote, something that our producers captured. Uh, you've commented that it's hard to study an area without changing it in some way. So when you find a historical site, uh, you, you, I'm sure you're thinking about the protocol for exploring and excavating artifacts so that you uh, leave as small of a footprint as possible behind. The reason I'm bringing that up now is you, you just mentioned you study the past with an eye of projecting what you learn uh, toward the future. So uh, as you think about the Earth Archive Project and other projects that you've been involved with, how how do you go about sort of uh, minimizing your impact on, on, the, on the site or the environment? As we learned in, in uh, as I've learned in many of my projects, especially in Honduras, it's impossible. So w- one of the, the tricky things about archaeology is that when we excavate, we destroy our evidence. You can't go back and re-excavate a site. And for the longest time, archaeology has been an observable science, as are many earth sciences, frankly. Um, and that is we can't go back and restudy an area because the earth is changing, the archaeological sites are changing. We often destroy our evidence. These, what's interesting to me, and this is, this is kind of a, a rabbit hole, but um, the, our ability to record these features as we're excavating them and, and also LIDAR gives, this, gives, our, gives us this ability to replicate our science in a way that we haven't ever been able to do before. So we're, we're kind of at this point where archaeology is, is moving from an observable science to an actual sort of actual science in the way that we think about it, where you put, you know, one liter of the orange liquid into a, a beaker and one liter of the purple liquid and it starts to smoke and anybody in the world can do that same experiment. We can go back now with these digital records and people can re-excavate these sites. And it's... Uh, Amazing, and it's both amazing and kind of terrifying for people, I think, 
And it's really transforming not only archaeology, but all of the observable sciences. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm actually talking to an archaeologist today on Weather Geeks. Uh, Chris Fisher from Colorado State University, co-founder of the Earth Archive Project. He's an archaeologist, professor of anthropology, and a National Geographic explorer, too, at Colorado State. So clearly someone at the top of his game and top of his field. So it's an honor to have you on Weather Geeks. I'm I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, by the way, from the University of Georgia. And we're talking about the Earth Archive Project and what what that's all about. And we, we introduced you to LIDAR, and that that's a, a, a very important part of this project. Now, many people may not think about this, but most of the Earth is covered in water, oceans, etc. But about 29% is actually land mass. Uh, and you have an ambitious plan to scan the entire globe, if you will. First of all, how hard is that? Uh, how are you going to go about doing it? And what are the challenges you anticipate? That we're facing incredible challenges in being able to do that. And so we want to fo- focus on areas that are most threatened to begin with for that scanning project. And there are some obvious places like the Amazon and the uh, coastlines of the world, but there are some also some less obvious places too, like tundra areas, et cetera. We, this, is a, this is an incredibly ambitious project, and it re- will require the participation of thousands of people globally, probably even using techniques like citizen science, and it will cost a a lot of money. But frankly, we don't really have a choice. Even if we all started living like the Flintstones today, the changes that we make, uh, that the impact from those changes will be telegraphed decades into the future. The earth is going to change significantly. And every day we're losing thousands of archeological sites and hectare after hectare after hectare of, of uh, ecological uh, patrimony. We have to preserve these records, these places, for future generations. And one way we can do that is by scanning the Earth using LIDAR, freezing it in time, and creating a digital Earth that we can curate and pass on to future generations. And that's really what the Earth Archive is about. Uh, our estimate for scanning the entire land mass area, and we're talking about the land mass area, we're not talking about the, the uh, water-covered portions of the Earth, is about $5 billion, which sounds like an incredible amount of money. $5 Frankly, billion with a B. With a B. $5 billion for the entire Earth. Wow. Uh, where, but, where do but, you have your, where's your funding coming from to this point? It's all private donations. Private right donations, now. okay. Private donations. Uh, it, and we're an amazing... We're in a, a major fundraising campaign right now. To, okay, how can we? How start. can listeners support that if they're interested? TheEarthArchive.com. TheEarthArchive.com is our website, and you can go on there and donate. Uh, and the money is uh, uh, goes straight to uh, Colorado State University and straight to the Earth Archive. Very good. I want to read a quote from Chris's. 
TEDx talk, and I want to I want you to respond to it. And I think you really just laid the context for it in those previous statements. Chris said in his TED talk, the climate crisis threatens to destroy our cultural and ecological patrimony within decades. Uh, this is something that he said, and then he goes on to say, how can we document everything before it's too late? So I think that statement or those, that series of statements sets the context or lays the groundwork uh, for what you're doing. But something that struck me in your quote is that you said within decades. Can you elaborate? Well, again, the changes that we're, that we're seeing on, on the Earth's surface are occurring so rapidly that, and it's probably not actually decades it's probably actually a decade, uh, that's especially even for, scarier, especially for areas that are most threatened. So, you know, as an example, this year we saw uh, an incredible tragedy, the burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral, um, which was a, a, a tremendous loss of uh, cultural patrimony, global cultural patrimony, I would say. But. Amazing. What what do you again? I, I think I know what you mean, but for your for the listeners here of Weather Geeks that may not really understand what you mean when you're talking about this concept of patrimony, what, what do you mean? This is from my perspective as an archaeologist. Our prehistory is this amazing record of human environment, human climate interaction, from which we can. I mean, let's face it. We as people, we're a fairly lazy species. Nobody wants to do, you know, more work than they have to do. So there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Embedded in that record, that human environment record, are past success stories and past failure stories that we can learn from and project into the future. It's the most, it's this incredible sandbox of past decision making that we can learn from. Every archaeological site, every building that's destroyed, every hectare of coastline these these are uh past these are pre- future solutions that are disappearing before our very eyes that's what i mean when i'm talking GPS about patrimony i'm talking about this amazing record that we can call through to help us build better adaptations in the future so if we think about notre dame the amazing thing about notre dame is that it was scanned using terrestrial lidar uh, in 2010 by an art historian, Andrew Talon, absolutely brilliant guy, inside and out. And his goal, of course, was to understand, like, you know, how the cathedral was constructed and put together. And, you know, it's a, the cathedral is a very complex thing. It was constructed in multiple episodes. He had no idea that, that this record could help rebuild Notre Dame. And that's exactly what's going to happen. But from my perspective... We're losing thousands of ecological cathedrals every day just in the Amazon alone. And we have no record of these places. Once they're gone, they're gone forever. LIDAR will allow us to create a record of these places. So at least we have something that we can pass on to future generations. And and you mentioned LIDAR, but I, I have to think that there, in addition to LIDAR, which sounds like the sort of key component of the effort, I, I have to think that there are other measurement techniques and data that, data that you're planning to incorporate. What are some of those? We'll put everything that we can together into a, into a massive archive, satellite photos, aerial photos, infrared, um, et cetera. But none of these technologies right now have the resolution and the three-dimensionality that will allow us to create these complete records. Right now, the only thing that we can that we can use is LIDAR. 
And we also don't have a spaceborne instrument that will do that. Uh, we're about 20 years away, roughly, from having a, a spaceborne LIDAR that will allow us to get the kind of aerial coverage and resolution that we need. Well, I actually wanted to follow up on that. I spent a good portion of my career at NASA, and so I'm very familiar with a lot of the LIDAR systems out there. I know that there are vegetation canopy LIDARs. There's a LIDAR, I believe, <coughs> excuse me, on the Calypso satellite that's measuring clouds. But for the specific needs to the, do the Earth archiving project, that sounds like there are very sort of specific you know, attributes, resolutions, et cetera, that you need. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, these these instruments just don't have the the, the spatial resolution that we're that, that we require, which is something that's it's basically submeter resolution. I was about to ask what I mean. And again, for those of you that are listening, we'll we'll do a little remote sensing one hundred and one here when we talk about the <laughs> spatial resolution or pixel size, if you will. Think about your your cell phone or your smartphone uh, and that camera on there, and you you'll see a megapixel value in them. The more megapixels you have, the better the picture is. And so, uh, if you can sort of translate that concept to to sort of Earth remote sensing, uh, the resolution is essentially sort of a, a designation of the megapixels, if you will, the sort of the, the finest resolution, the finest scale that we can resolve. So if something has a five meter resolution, that means we can see it from space at five by five meters in, in, in areas. So you're saying you need sub, did you say sub meter scale? Yeah. And just by the way, can I uh, steal that? explanation and use it in my class? Oh, absolutely. It would be very, my guest. I use it all was, the time in mine. That was, that was very good. Yeah, so we're, we're, what we're specifying is uh, submeter resolution. So uh, for, our, for our scans that I've done in Mexico, we use products that have a pixel size of about 25 centimeters on a side. So we wow. can see something on the ground that's about the size of a construction brick. Wow. For my work in, in Honduras, we used products that have a pixel size just because the, uh, we were working in the Mosquitia rainforest and the canopies, much, it's arguably the thickest kind of canopy that you can get globally and so uh you know you're just not getting the, as much penetration we had, we're using a product that had a pixel size of uh between 75 centimeters and a meter um depending on on what the kinds of questions we were asking so pretty pretty fine resolution and there is a new instrument actually on the iss which is called jedi which is one of the awesomest it is, it, it, except it starts with a G, but I agree with you. I know. Very cool, very cool and very appropriate acronym for NASA for sure. Yeah, which will do some of uh, which will do some of this. Uh, it potentially could give us records where we might be able to see some archaeology, but it's still not at the at the resolution that we need. Have you, which you just you just prompted a question. I mean, ha have you reached out to or approached or proposed to NASA for this project? We, we are in the process of doing that, um, and I'm not, and we'll, and, uh, we'll see what NASA's <laughs> reaction is to that. <laughs> right. I mean, what's your plan B if we can't get, I mean, or, or is there a plan B, or are you just full steam ahead as proposed and planned in terms of how you're trying to pull this off? We have to go full, we, we're out of time. We have to go full steam ahead. Um, it's all hands on deck. And so, uh. You know, and I often use the analogy um, of, of the Titanic. I mean, it's like if the Earth is the, the Titanic, uh, we've struck the iceberg, everybody's on deck, the orchestra's playing, and we have to figure out what to put on the lifeboats. I mean, that's the situation that we're in now. And this, an Earth archive should be one of the things that's on the lifeboats. 
And so we just don't have time. We don't have time to mess around. And so it's a very, you know, what we've done and what we're proposing is overwhelming and it's very scary, but we have to do it. So, you know, we might crash and burn. We might not get the whole earth scanned. Maybe we'll just get some important parts of the earth scanned, but at least we took off. At least we did something. And at least I can tell, uh, you know, my, at least my, the people that follow me will be able to say, yeah, they tried. They weren't able to get the entire earth scan, but at least they did something. I mean, and I think we're at a point in our, in our history as a species where everybody has to ask themselves, you know, what, what, what are they doing? And, you know, one other thing about this, and, and something that's kind of amazed me, is that uh, there's a lot of sort of ennui, I guess, associated with the climate crisis. And, and a, a lot of people are, you know, sort of suggesting that we're going to go extinct and what's the point and, you know, maybe it's time to just cash in your 401k and, you know, head to Vegas or whatever. And I, and I, actually, I actually see a lot of hope in this. This is a this is a, a global project that you know it's the 21st century and we're all so connected, but maybe never before have we been so divided, and this is a project that can bring us together. We can fight this common thing, come up with these global solutions, and maybe come out on the other side with a more unified uh, humanity. And so I see a lot of uh, I see a lot of hope in the climate crisis. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Chris Fisher, an archaeologist at Colorado State University, about an ambitious project and one that is expensive from his own admission, but one that's certainly, in his view, needed uh, for the sort of continuance of our species in some regards in terms of how dire the situation is. I, I mean, I sense in talking to you, Chris, a sense of urgency, and I think that's interesting. And in fact, just this week, I was reading an editorial in the New York Times, I believe, uh, or, or some major newspaper. And it was actually sort of blaming scientists in a way for the lack of action or, or the inaction on climate change because uh, we haven't conveyed the sense of urgency. And we've, you know, we're trained as scientists to be very careful and measured, but yet things are happening at alarming rates. And we, we, we tend as scientists not to want to be alarmist and, and hyperbolic in our, in our thoughts. Some people were critical of that article because they thought it was a little bit too harsh towards the scientists. Others were like, yep, that's about right. So what are, what are your thoughts on our, our voice as scientists uh, concerning what we're seeing with the planet? I think we've done a really horrible job of communicating uh, science, honestly. And I think it's one of the reasons that science is under threat right now. And it's one of the reasons that our uh, funding is disappearing. And it's one of the reasons that there aren't as many tenure track faculty positions in academia and et cetera. And I think one of the reasons for that is that science has been very, very slow to respond and adopt to 21st century techniques of communication, internet, blogs, 
social media, we're just really bad at it. I, 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 you're, you're, you're preaching the language I often preach as well. I mean, I, I, I cringe, for example, when I hear colleagues at the university say, oh, I don't use that new stuff like Twitter. Twitter's not <laughs> new. It's been around for a while. Yeah. And, and I think also, you know, we have this, this uh, aversion to using, like, for example, just ordinary language that people can understand and being able to, to you know, explain our, our scientific uh, findings as a narrative, as a story. And that's what people are designed to, we're, we're hardwired to, uh, you know, for most of our prehistory, we lived as hunting and gathering people. And we passed on our knowledge as stories. We're hardwired to understand stories and narratives. And, you know, I hear people say, oh, it, this is science. It's not a story. You know, this isn't a novel. And I'm like, well, it, it, is, an, it is a story. And this is, this is how people understand things. And um, so we're just doing, we've done such a bad job at, at uh, communicating our science and, and right now, it's really coming back to kill us. And the climate crisis is one example of that, I think. I, I think I think you're right. And that's that's one of the areas I spend a great deal of my time on. That's why this podcast, thankfully, exists. So kudos and shout out to the Weather Channel, because this is an outlet where we, we have people on and we're trying to reach people on various topics. And I mean, look, we're, we don't we don't always expect everyone to agree with everything said by the guest or me or anyone else on this podcast. But this is a science based outlet. Uh, we're not there are no agendas here. There's no ideology here. It's just science. And so I, I appreciate that you've come on to talk about the Earth Archive Project because uh, we I, I see the value in what you're trying to do here. I, I, I wanted to circle back to the project because I know that you're going to you have this goal of, of scanning the entire globe, but there are some rem pretty remote places, even on the land, uh, the jungles and Arctic regions. Uh, how, how do you how do you approach those those areas, or do you just don't don't do you not start in those more difficult areas? I think we have to start in those most difficult areas. Yeah, I think areas, those are the most exactly. <laughs> and um, and there isn't going to be a single methodology that we're going to be used that's going to that we'll be able to use that's going to hit all of those places. We're going to have to use a combination of helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft, maybe drones, uh, maybe automated aircraft. Um, it's going to be by hook and by crook. It's going to be however we can actually do it, and it's probably going to be a slightly different set of methodologies everywhere in the world. And also, you know, big and and there are a number of bottlenecks or roadblocks that we see. And the and the first one is the scan time and just getting the scan done. And our immediate focus is just getting the scan done, just collecting the data, and then processing the data and getting it into a usable format, or, you know, and then storing the data and um, cur curating it, uh, making it accessible to the public. These are all things that we're going to work on later. What, so, what is an accessible or useful format look like? This and this is an interesting question because one of the things I, again, I spent spent a good portion of my early career at NASA, and, and I would see all of these sort of very fancy. IT terminology formats like NetCDF and HDF and blah, 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 F. And yet NASA wanted a lot of that data to be used by practitioners, water resource managers and others. And they wanted data in sort of shape files that they can pop into a GIS system, for example. So my point in that is that the language of data that we speak is not necessarily the language of usability for the, the broader public or stakeholders or decision makers. So are you wrangling with that question? Question or have you, do you have it figured out? 
we definitely don't have that figured out. But I think there's two two ends. It's like a continuum, and there's sort of two ends of it. And of course, and I just want to say one thing. You know, our ability to analyze and use these lidar records right now is at its infancy. Ten years from now, people are going to be asking questions that we can't conceive of using techniques. You know, using AI, machine learning, et cetera, using techniques that we also can't conceive of. So, you know, the critical thing really is just to collect the data because people will be able to manipulate the data in ways that are just going to, you know, blow us away today. But these records are disappearing so quickly that we can't, you know, we have to collect them now. And then so in terms of formats, I mean, we have to find a format that we can curate this stuff in perpetuity. Frankly, it's probably an ASCII file. (laughs) I I agree. (laughs) I mean... That's probably the bottom line. And then, you know, there's a loss format, which is kind of a, the standard now uh, for uh, storing the three-dimensional data. And then most people today, because uh, the computing power to actually analyze those data in three dimensions is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty arduous. So most people skim a lot of the three-dimensional data off and use a two, what people are calling 2D plus product which is a digital, some sort of digital elevation model or something derived from a digital elevation model. And then, of course, once you get that DEM, then you can create shape files and all sorts of other stuff that uh, products from that DEM that uh, people will use. And that's, the, that's kind of the pipeline right now for analyzing the, the, the LiDAR data. But in the future, people are actually going to dig deeper into those, the actual three-dimensionality of it. Uh, which is kind of difficult to do today. Do you ever envision a situation where the Earth Archive Project, you know, I don't know where we'll be in five, ten years, but there's an app on your phone that you can just pull up the Earth, Earth Archive? Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be so awesome? Yeah, because we're such that. a phone or smartphone-oriented society, and I, I could see it headed that way, although it would certainly be a technological challenge given the, I think, volume of data you're going to be dealing with. I, I, well, I, and I think that will be possible eventually. And I, I hope I live long enough to be able to, you know, to be able to see that. Um, and that's the other amazing thing about these earth archive records. These, they're, they're really not for me and they're not for you. And they're not for, they're not for my kids. They're not for my grandkids. They're for generations beyond where we are today. We fully expect that people hundreds of years from now, and I know that sounds crazy, but I think it's true. We'll be using these records in ways that are just would just totally blow us away today. Yeah, so you're really talking about an er- digital Earth time capsule, if you will, but but not meant to be sort of buried and not discovered, but to really be active and dynamic uh, for future generations. So, you know, we're we're drawing to a, a close here. But if you're on an elevator with a senator or governor, what what's your sort of one minute elevator speech for why this is important or what your <laughs> ultimate goal is. And one thing, and, and I would say, look, we, to measure change, you have to measure something against something else. Right now, we don't have the baseline data for the world to be able to measure change. So we're ha- it's really difficult for us to understand what's changing. And then of course, to create solutions to stop that change. And so the Earth Archive is the first step toward uh, finding solutions for the climate crisis. 
that's where we have to end. This has been an amazing discussion. Uh, Where can people find you on social media or find information on the Earth Archive Project? So everything is based off of our website, which is theeartharchive.com. And you can go on there and there's tons of links and information. And my personal website is (laughs) chrisfisher.science. So they can go on there and get uh, information about me, see a picture of me or whatever they want to do. But the Earth Archive website is theeartharchive.com. And, and make sure make sure you go bookmark that site because we all we all need to be aware of what's going on. Now it's time for our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Christine Bassett of the University of Alabama. She is a PhD candidate at Alabama and a marine policy assistant for the National Weather Service, uh, increasing the quality and quantity of buoys in the Arctic so we have a greater sea ice observation for years to come. We knew she was a big fan of oceans because her Twitter handle is at mother of clams. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next geek of the week, check out our social media pages on Twitter and Facebook to apply. Congratulations to Christine, our geek of the week. And we'd like to thank you also, Chris, for joining us on Weather Geeks. Thank you so much. I so is I really, really appreciate it. And I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And again, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thank you again. See you next time on Weather Geeks. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.